It's, um, it's a matter of our great good fortune that the uh, 218th meeting of the American Oriental Society, which I just mentioned, was successful in one of its most important aims, which was uh, bringing here for their first visit to Chicago our uh, speaker today, Professor John Brockington, and his learned wife, Mary Brockington. And uh, those of you who, were, who made it downtown for the session on uh, the Sanskrit epics yesterday will have seen how um, eloquently they started off the final inning of that conference with uh, Mary Brockington as the leadoff hitter and John Brockington batting in the uh, two-hole. <laughs> I'm throwing in a little baseball jargon to add authenticity to your Chicago experience. <laughs> and uh, actually, I have just one more sentence in that vein, which is that uh, uh, those of you who are familiar with uh, the big leagues of such conferences on an international level will know that the, where Sanskrit is concerned, the real World Series is in fact the World Sanskrit <laughs> Conference, which is an event so prodigious and complex and difficult to pull off that it's attempted only once every three years. And uh, the last such event uh, was uh, carried off with extraordinary success the summer before last on the campus of the University of Edinburgh. And a uh, large part of that success is due to the role of uh, John and Mary Brockington in planning and uh, hosting uh, that conference. Uh, actually, while I'm speaking on an international level, I should also mention that uh, Professor Brockington is the uh, current Secretary General of the International Association of uh, Sanskrit Studies, which is the closest thing we have to a supreme pontiff or pontadon <laughs> of, of Sanskrit studies. And um, it, it is, in fact, at the University of Edinburgh that uh, Professor Brockington has uh, uh, spent um, most of his career after uh, uh, being educated at uh, Oxford. And it's there that he is now the uh, emeritus professor of Sanskrit, and uh, along the way has uh, published um, a good many influential books and, and uh, uh, so many articles that I couldn't begin to uh, list them. Uh, as probably all of you know, um, uh, many of his uh, uh, most influential books have been in the area in which he'll be speaking to us tonight, which is that of the uh, Sanskrit epics, beginning with, uh, just to mention the books that deal with the epics, uh, Righteous Rama, The Evolution of an Epic, uh, which came out in 1985, uh, and also an epic and Puranic uh, bibliography. And... Uh, uh, a book on the Sanskrit epics uh, in the Leiden uh, Handbuch der Orientalistik. Um, also, more recently, um, Epic Threads, a collection of Professor Brockington's uh, writings on the Sanskrit epics, and um, uh, a book on uh, Indian epic traditions, past and present, uh, which Professor Brockington helped to edit and contain the papers that were presented in, in another very successful conference uh, in uh, Edinburgh in the, uh, 2000. And uh, most recently, and this is a work that comes from both John and Mary Brockington, uh, Rama the Steadfast, uh, an early form of the Ramayana. This is a translation of the epic in uh, a form that I recommend as a really bracing experience. It starts out quite dramatically 
as I recall, with Rama already on the way to see his mother mm. after he's had the bad news. Uh, and uh, so that's quite an interesting uh, book. Professor Brockington's um, uh, other works include uh, a, a number of books on uh, uh, questions of religion and on uh, Hinduism and Christianity. Like his first book was uh, The Sacred Thread, uh, Hinduism and, his, and its Continuity and Diversity. Um, but since I know that uh, most of you already know all of this, and also that you would rather hear him than me. I think I'll uh, stop with that and turn to our uh, talk for today, the title of which is Ganesha versus Kushilavao, Myths and Reality of the Oral Composition of the Sanskrit Epics. Thanks very much, Guy. Uh, I hope you don't mind if I stay seated. You're much more comfortable. Tell me if you can't hear me. Um, well, perhaps the most widely known story about the Mahabharata coming into being is, of course, the story about Vyasa dictating the text to Ganesha as his scribe and, of course, throwing in occasional obscure verses to slow him down. Uh, K.M. Ganguly included it, of course, in his pioneering and still widely used translation, while we still wait for the rest of the Chicago translation to be published. Um, it means you, Wendy. <laughs> yes. Uh, a translation is, of course, called commonly the Roy translation, uh, it's another instance of things that aren't quite what they seem. Uh, also, to take a more recent example, it was featured prominently in Peter Brook's stage and television adaptation of the Mahabharata. According to this story, of course, and I expect most of you know this, but let me give you the details anyway, or an outline. Uh, Brahma commissions Vyasa to compose the poem. Vyasa thinks about Ganesha, who comes to, to him. Vyasa then says... Become the writer of this Bharata as I proclaim it and compose it in my mind. Uh, Ganesha slightly demurs, uh, making the proviso that his pen shouldn't stop, even for a moment. Uh, so Vyasa counters with the condition that Ganesha should understand what he's writing before he does so, and then includes plenty of these conundrums. It's somewhat ironic, of course, that this story has no basis whatsoever in the text established in the critical edition. Indeed, Ganesha himself is absent in any capacity from the Mahabharata narrative, as the German scholar Moritz Winternitz noted well over a century ago. But the story does occur as an inserted passage added in several northern manuscripts to an appendix passage, 1-1, which is itself a late assertion into the first Ajaya of the Atrapafan. The absence of the story, in fact, uh, of uh, Ganesha as Vyasa's scribe, uh, led uh, Vinternitz to argue that it was still not part of the uh, Mahabharata in the time of Shemendra, since he didn't have it even in his uh, Bharata Manjari, so not till the middle of the 11th century. Although it was actually known to another uh, writer, writer Shekhara, who included it in the introductory scene of his Bala Bharata around 900. Uh, Another point to this sort of dating is that uh, Nanaya's Telugu adaptation of the Mahabharata also uh, lacks it. So, you know, it looks as though it's coming in at around that sort of time of 10th, 11th. Also, before I move on, just as an aside, uh, let me remark that the variety of names for Ganesha found within this passage of just 20 lines inserted by those northern manuscripts makes it appear almost a charter for the veneration of the deity. He's called there in just 20 lines, Ganesha, Hiramba, Ganeshana, Vignesha, Gananayaka. Um, well, 
uh, Ganesha for the Mahabharata. To turn next to the uh, Ramayana, here there's just the one origin myth given, which again uh, gives Brahma a role, although it's preceded by Narada answering Valmiki's question about the ideal man, and Valmiki's witnessing the killing of the Croucher bird. When these are given in both the theme and the medium, Brahma then commissions Valmiki to tell the story, uh, the story of Rama to the world. And once he has composed it, he wonders who can transmit it and thinks of Kusha and Lava, um, then living in his ashrama, Valmiki's ashrama, with their mother Sita. So Valmiki teaches it to them and they sing the poem, eventually before Rama himself. Then in the Uttarakhanda, that was in the uh, Bala, the uh, first book, then in the Uttarakhanda we have the actual narrative of Valmiki sending Kusha and Lava to recite the Ramayana for the first time at Rama's court. So here, within the Ramayana itself, although only the later parts of the text, the Bala and the Uttarakhandas, we have just as unequivocal an emphasis on the oral nature of the text as in the Mahabharata's inserts story about Ganesha, there's an emphasis on the written form. Unless we regard the Mahabharata and the Ramayana as being de very different in nature, uh, and I don't want on this occasion to get embroiled in issues of whether we should categorise them both as epics, but if we regard them as being at least broadly similar, these two myths, as I think you'll agree that they are, stand in opposition to each other. And so we must seek other evidence regarding the oral or written origins of both. Uh, the problem, to state the obvious, is that we only have written texts of what most scholars assume to have been orally transmitted works originally. And indeed, on the usual assumptions about dating, we only have manuscripts written many centuries after the original composition of the epics and even of their first being committed to writing. Even the second of those intervals is probably of the order of a millennium. To go back to the Mahabharata, there, of course, there is a different account of its origin in the critical edition's first Adhyaya. This opens with the words of the Sutta, the Bard, to the Brahmins assembled in the Naimisha forest for Sharnika's Satra, stating that he's come from the great sacrifice of Janamejaya, another Satra that is, aimed at destroying all the world's snakes. There, Vaishampayana recounted the tales he had heard from Krishnadvaipayana, Vyasa, that constitute the Mahabharata. So here, not written, but we have the epic presented as if being narrated then and there, with reciter and audience actually within the text. We also, though, have the further dimension of transmission from one reciter to another orally. While this account, too, is essentially a myth, in both the scholarly sense of a narrative concerned with explaining origins and the more popular sense of something that doesn't correspond to historical reality, it does seem to me rather closer to the reality of the origin of the Mahabharata and, by extension, of the Ramayana. It's clear to me that the Mahabharata and the Ramayana represent the culmination of a long tradition of oral poetry transmitted through recitation by the suitors or bards before they were committed to writing some considerable period later. Their oral origins have indeed long been recognised by most scholars. Uh, well over a century ago, uh, in an exercise in reconstructing the text of a Ramayana passage, Hermann Jacobi 
identified the narration of certain episodes twice in slightly different forms as a relic of the oral tradition. Again, over 80 years ago, uh, Washburn Hopkins, um, when the uh, Northwestern recension of the uh, Ramayana was beginning to be published, uh, was led to question whether an original Ramayana ever existed. He concluded from the textual variations given there and between the recensions that no plausible original could be reconstructed and that right from the first repetition of the text by Abad, no original Ramayana existed. Another aspect, uh, again, by the way, of this early debate about the nature of the Sanskrit epics has, I think, now been uh, well and truly superseded. This was the view that because of their popular nature, they must have been composed in the popular language, that is, in one of the Prakrits, and only later transposed into the Sanskrit. Though long abandoned, such views do remind us that the Sanskrit epics are in an unusual linguistic position, which may well have influenced their transmission in ways that differ from comparable literature in other parts of the world. To me, uh, they're oral, but claims of a written origin for the Mahabharata have uh, more recently been being made by Alf Hilterbeitel, which have significant implications as he clearly recognises for their dating, since I, I think these arguments apply mutatis mutandis to the Ramayana, which indeed Hiltabaitl would place after the Mahabharata. Sidestepping issues such as the indebtedness of the Ramapakyana to the Rama story uh, and the occurrence elsewhere in the Mahabharata of other references to the Rama story and even explicitly to the Ramayana. Our earliest datable evidence for the use of writing is, of course, the Ashokan inscriptions, although it's possible that certain much briefer inscriptions for the Mayan period are slightly earlier. But it's widely agreed that writing didn't become general until appreciably later. Uh, the Paritipitika and its commentary were first written down in the first century BC, according to the Deepavamsa and Mahavamsa. And it doesn't seem likely that writing caught on any earlier, if as early, in grammatical circles. Essentially, therefore, any investigation of the oral or written origins of the Sanskrit epics must proceed from internal evidence. The style of the epics, despite the esteem in which the Ramayana has been held as the Adikavya, is relatively simple compared with classical Sanskrit literature. Indeed, an obvious feature is that formulaic expressions constitute an important element of their style. Alongside this, we find, for example, the use of a simple verse meter in the main, the predominance of, sorry, of similes among the figures of speech employed, fairly frequent alliteration and other forms of assonance, but used in an unsophisticated manner, and far fewer complex compounds than in the classical language. For me, all of this points in the direction of an oral origin. I mean, for one thing, ever since the work of Parry and Lord on Homer and on the South Slavic epics, formerly have been considered one of the defining characteristics of orality. Indeed, the name oral formulaic theory, often used for it, uh, does privilege formulae, perhaps unduly so. Uh, Parry's well-known definition of a formula is an expression regularly used under the same metrical conditions to express an essential idea. It's important to remember that while oral poetry is characteristically formulaic, this does not automatically mean that all formulaic poetry is oral. But so far as we're concerned, I think this means that we've got to search 
a bit further for um, markers of orality before we can simply say that a text is uh, oral. And Lord himself, indeed, proposed a set of three tests for formulaic language, for enjambement, and for theme. Uh, subsequently, another uh, scholar uh, of the classics, Berkeley uh, Peabody, working on Hesiod rather than Homer, extended this to a set of five levels, phoneme, formula, enjambement, theme, and song, and suggested that positive indications were needed for each of these before a text could firmly be considered a direct product of an oral tradition. Uh, while we must beware of the limitation of extrapolating from one language and culture to another without allowing for the inevitable differences, uh, these tests uh, will provide me with a convenient framework on which to uh, hang the rest of what I have to say, uh, since they cover a, a pretty broad range of evidence and wider, in fact, than most schemes. Um, the first test, then, the phonemic, uh, Peabody defines as consistency in the patterns of language sounds used by a singer, taking forms such as rhyme, alliteration, assonance, and much that's usually described as metre. This is, in fact, it seems to me, the least helpful in the Sanskrit context, where the various forms of wordplay, of course, that are um, grouped under alliteration and assonance have remained a significant feature of written language, of literature. But there is, I think, one feature which seems to belong under this heading and which is distinctive of the epics, uh, probably therefore oral, it's the use of chiasmus, not even recognised by the writers on poetics, but it's well marked in both epics. Also, while alliteration and assonance are common, they occur in simpler forms than in classical kavya, forms which again seem more natural to oral poetry. So next, uh, formulae. As I noted just now, an obvious feature of both the Mahabharata and the Ramayana is the frequency of formulaic expressions. On my reckoning, where I take a minimum of five syllables in the Pada, being stereotyped, around a third of the shloka in the Ramayana contain some formulaic material, and the proportion for the Mahabharata is very similar. And calculations on a, a different basis, such as those by the Russian scholar Pavel Grintzer, uh, who was doing it at much the same time, uh, he has figures of around 80% of battle scenes consisting of formulae and formulaic expressions, and 40 to 50% of narrative chapters. So that certainly is, I mean, however you calculate it, and the, the differences of percentages are more about, about how you define um, formulaic expression than uh, anything else. Such forms of repetition are, of course, common to many, if not all, epic traditions. But, as I said, roots in oral composition do not mean that epics have always remained oral productions. The traditional phraseology doesn't necessarily disappear immediately writing is used. In fact, I think, don't think it does. Uh, if anything, indeed, it may at times increase. The diction of a written work frequently continues the formulaic patterns. And that is why, I think, stock powders tend to be more frequent in the later parts of both of the epics. And But, and this is the point I want to make in particular, that increase in frequency is accompanied in the Ramayana by substantial shifts in the formulaic expressions employed in the Ayodhya to Yudhakandas from those in the Bala and Uttarakandas. 
In the Mahabharata, uh, the Chantyanansha Sunapavans, to some of the other didactic elements, show a distinctively different pattern from the so-called battle books, books 6 to 9, both in frequency and in type of formulaic expression. Oh, here, for example, uh, my Cambridge colleague, John Smith, that we were talking about a moment or two ago, highlights details of the distribution patterns of some of the phrases used to introduce or conclude speeches. Uh, notes that ityuktasa or ityuktasa hardly, I quote, hardly appears at all in the first 11 books, except the mainly late book 3, and is far below predictable frequency in book 12, but occurs frequently in books 13 to 15. This being the first sign we have had of a distinction between books 12 and 13, unquote. Because he has been at that point trying to emphasise that this distinction that I've just made between the Shantina and Shasana and others. Um, in this context, he also points to uh, the fact that the phrase idam vachinam abravito, abravan, is most frequent in the narrative books and distinctly less so in the Shantina and Shasana paravans. Most strikingly of all, he notes that the noun phrase itihasam puratanam, which often, of course, is part of a full line, udaharantimam itihasam puratanam, that it has around three times the predictable frequency in books at 12 and 13. In the also late book 14, it has over twice the predictable frequency. Elsewhere, it hardly occurs at all, except for near predictable frequency in book 5. Clearly, passages containing this tag are unlikely to be early wherever they occur. Unquote. So, a very marked shift in what is still formulaic expression. Yaroslav um, Vasilkov, in an article which builds on once by then published by uh, Pavel Grinza, uh, concentrated more on the function of supporting words in forming formulaic endings to parties, uh, and divides them into categories of semantically positive words, such as a subject and a nominative, and semantically neutral words, which are commonly vocatives. A distinction which is useful in some ways, but does obscure the fact that frequently it's the same word that's involved, the difference only being of case. So that both categories do have more in common than it divides them. But uh, Vasilkov and Grinza have uh, taken this study of formulae very much further in many respects. Um, Grinza's subsequent book, which incidentally shows the influence of both the Parry Lord theories and of uh, Vladimir Prop, uh, the first part, in fact, on the oral and written tradition in the old Indian epic, uh, develops his ideas on epic formulae in the Mahabharata. The second part compares the Mahabharata with epics from other cultures. In that first part, then, he classifies formulae into six types and demonstrates that narrative sections, especially those describing battle scenes, are rich in formulae, whereas didactic passages are much less so. He also rightly notes that many formulae are both synonymous and metrically equivalent, which means that the formulaic system of the Mahabharata is not characterised by the simplicity of the Homeric system. And this is a major difference between the uh, Sanskrit epics and uh, the Greek uh, material. Uh, part of length phrases comprising a personal name and an epithet are the commonest formulaic expressions. The other main types in my classification, uh, Grinzers were slightly different but, uh, but broadly similar. Uh, the main types are introductions and conclusions to speeches, 
various for verbal formulae expressing emotion or emphasis, certain descriptive and hyperbolic phrases, stock expressions for battle scenes, naturally enough, phrases of time, place and number, proverbs and similar math expressions, and stereotype similes. Formulae mainly occur in the second and fourth parders, except, of course, those used after the end of speeches, uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, these usually occur in the first, less commonly the third parder. However, the metrical pattern of the shloka means, as Grinzer also observed, that there are regularly different sets of formulae for the odd parders from those for the even parders. Incidentally, uh, stereotype parders to introduce or to conclude speeches are frequent in both epics, despite the use in the Mahabharata of those extra metrum announcements of the speaker. And various formulae are used according to the length of name, whether of speaker or of person addressed, which is usually included within the parda. Uh, so much is the employment of formulae linked with metre that the suggestion has even been made that formulae generated metre rather than the reverse. I mean, some while back, uh, Rudig Schmidt uh, postulated the existence of an inherited Indo-European Diktersprache on the basis of a few phrases that are common to Homer and the Rig Veda, and subsequently Gregory Nagy argued that the metrical contexts of phrases like Kleos uh, Aftiton and Shras Akshitam, which are identical in both Greek and Sanskrit, that you know, this was a basis for his claim that the preference for certain phrases with particular rhythms leads by stages to the emergence of metre as a structure in its own right. Uh, whatever one thinks of this argument, and personally I have reservations about it, it does nonetheless underline the close association between formula and metre. Well, I've emphasised that there are shifts in the formula used. Um, I'm in a second going to suggest that it is linked with the shift to writing. But what is the difference, first of all, between the use of formulae in oral poetry and their use in its written successions? Essentially, I think, it is that the oral poet uses formulae as part of his creative process. They're part of his way of thinking, and so they're integral to the whole, whereas the writing poet adds them to his material, uh, presumably as a badge of authenticity or authority, through apparent continuity with that oral tradition, and so their extraneous ornament. Still, while those shifts in the patterns of formulaic expression that I noted are readily understandable in terms of an extended period of growth, and indeed form part of the evidence for it, they're much less readily explicable for a short period of composition in written form, such as Alf Hilterbeitel is postulating. Although, I'm afraid he simply refuses to recognise such shifts in formulae. Similarly, the substantial changes in vocabulary that are detectable between different phases of uh, the growth of both texts are to be expected over a longer period of time, but are problematic over a short period and within a close-knit group. Whether that longer period of time was one of oral or written composition is another matter, and there is, to a limited extent, an argument against orality in the presumed levelling effect of oral transmission on such differences. But the presumption seems to me not to be a strong one, especially in the Indian context, with its emphasis on memorisation and exact transmission orally of, obviously in particular, the Vedic corpus. 
Moreover, it's well recognised in other traditions of oral poetry that the poets employ a vocabulary which is not that of current speech and is even to some extent artificial. I refer back to things like uh, Parian Lord on the South Slavic poets. And that brings me back to the third of those tests of orality that Peabody was proposing, that of enjambement, the extent to which syntactic units cross, um, extend across metrical boundaries. Uh, the person who's done most on this is uh, Yaroslav Vasilkov, who in a couple of articles highlights the absence or a very insignificant percentage in the Havarata of what's termed necessary or obligatory enjambement, that is uh, characteristic of literary style, that is a certain amount of unperiodic enjambement. That is, the thought of a one grammatically complete uh, verse is then added onto by new word groups in the next. But you've got a complete thing and then you add on a bit. And that's uh, a natural way of doing it. We, we all do it in our own speech, repeatedly. And they probably don't often <laughs> realise it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes. Um, uh, so, you know, this is, I think, uh, quite a good uh, marker of um, an oral style, at the least. Um, I don't, uh, unfortunately, have um, formal statistics on this, but uh, it's pretty obvious from any reading of the Mahabharata in the reminder that any carrying over of sense beyond the individual verse is relatively infrequent and that virtually all occurrences are indeed instances of already complete utterances having further items added on. So by this test too, I think the Mahabharata and the Ramayana are, in all probability, originally oral compositions. Another pair of features I could perhaps mention here uh, are the tolerance of hiatus between odd and even partners, and conversely the rare disregard of word break at that point. Tolerance of hiatus is not that frequent, but a bit more so in what seem to be the earlier passages. For, its, for instance, it's more frequent in the Sabha-Pavan of the Mahabharata than in the Drona-Pavan. Um, for the other, the disregard of word break, which is almost exclusively with long compounds, where to a limited extent there is observance of it by sort of the internal word break at the part of division. Well, in the Ramayana, which is where I've done more work on this kind of thing, belongs mainly to the second stage of its growth. So what these point to to me is a structure of uh, the verse still uh, in parda units to a significant extent, and indeed the internal grammatical structure quite frequently aligning with that. Again, uh, an element of natural and therefore most probably oral uh, composition. The fourth of uh, Peabody's tests then uh, uh, concerned theme, and here too the Russian scholars have been uh, pioneers. Um, uh, Vasilkov stresses the importance of thematic analysis and categorises the main themes as duels, ascetic exploits, requests made to storytellers, reception of guests, description of nature, and the like. He makes the point that such themes, whether limited to one or two verses or developed at length, are often introduced by a formulaic expression. He also affirms that themes are traditionally linked in the mind of the singers and that discrepancies and 
contradictions, in quotes, in the text, are a consequence of the limited variability in the expression of traditional ideas typical of the oral poetic style. Uh, then Grinzer, in the second part of that book that I referred to earlier, uh, compares the Mahabharata with other epics and with folk tales that are products of oral tradition. He, first of all, draws attention to the fact that there's a remarkable uniformity in the motifs and plots of heroic epics, and adds that the typological similarities have also produced a similarity in the organisation of the material as a whole, which we can explain as the fact that their plots are constructed in similar ways and they share the same principles and methods of composition. On this basis, he uh, Grinzer, uh, defines the Mahabharata as classical heroic epic, not the archaic uh, epic represented, uh, for example, for him by some of the oldest uh, Russian billionaires, but similar to the Iliad, the Kazakh oral epic, the Manas and others, but partly transformed into a late epic, those with a religious didactic element, such as the Kadmon cycle. Uh, Grinzer's discussion of the typology of the Mahabharata was then continued by uh, Yaroslav Vasilka, who argues that in the way that, for example, the story of the Pandava's struggle with Jarasandha is modelled, in his view, on the myth of the battle between the Thunder God and his demonic adversary, uh, which he affirms is an Indo-European myth, the Mahabharata moulds its historical material according to mythic and ritual patterns, thus attesting the persistence of the archaic type of the epic. Vasilkov therefore emphasises that while the Mahabharata did go through the stage of the classical heroic epic and was partly transformed into a religious didactic element, it also retained throughout some features of epic folklore at the archaic stage. And in fact, he sees this as the uh, unique feature of the Mahabharata. I quote, there's no other epic in the world which combines in the same way the features of all three main historical stages of development, archaic, classical and late. So I think, although indirectly, this points to the significance of a theme as building blocks, uh, which is, uh, say, the fourth of those tests of Peabody's. The fifth, that of song, defined as consistency in the patterns of discourse generated by a singer, is less clearly distinguishable, in fact, from that fourth one of theme than one might wish. Uh, the main difference uh, being scale, it seems. And somewhat I've just commented on might perhaps belong better under this head. Uh, the extent to which the epic's poets and reciters make use of standard story elements, such as have been catalogued in motif indexes, is another obvious feature here, but also one that's only beginning to be investigated. There are also, I think, certain other features which perhaps belong here better than elsewhere. Uh, the frequency with which a phrase or a passage is repeated within a short space of its first occurrence seems on the whole a mark of the oral character of the Mahabharata and I think to a less extent of the minor. Although a specialised form of such repetition which has a definite emphatic purpose, the use of refrains, found mainly in speeches, uh, as one of several rhetorical devices so used. Uh, A.K. Ramarajan took discussion on this point a stage further by suggesting that, I quote, the central structuring principle of the epic is a certain kind of repetition. Uh, going on to say, not only are there repetitive phrases, similes and formulaic descriptions that students of oral poetics have taught us to recognise, but incidents, scenes, settings and spe especially relationships are repeated, unquote. 
He illustrates this by examining the genealogies of the main characters, noting the regular pattern of double espousal and double parentage for them. For example, uh, Chantenou has a human and a supernatural lover, Sachivati and Ganga, uh, respectively. While Sachivati has also had intercourse with Parashara, the offspring of which is Vyasa, the ancestor of both the Pandavas and the Kauravas. Other patterns of repetition that Ramanuja identified are that many of the main figures are born to their mothers before marriage or after widowhood, that certain characters and settings appear several times, most notably the Ganga, that fires appear repeatedly, that Dravasas appears in the life of Kunti as well as Draupadi, and that whole situations like the hero's exile in disguise are replicated either simultaneously or successively. Some of these examples are probably trivial, but in general, his suggestion seems justified that such repetitive elements foreshadow later events and recapture earlier ones, enhancing the structural unity of the work as a whole. And that unity of structure presumably belongs to the original oral epic. Another feature which seems somewhat more characteristic of oral poetry than written literature is that of ring composition. Uh, but so typical is this of much pre-modern literature in general that we even have now the noted anthropologist Mary Douglas writing a book on the topic and commenting both that ring composition is found all over the world and that, paradoxically, ring composition is extremely difficult for Westerners to recognise, even though she then takes as examples not only Homer's Iliad uh, but also Lawrence Stone's Tristram Shandy. Ring composition has, of course, long been recognised by scholars of texts in many languages, by no means excluding Sanskrit. Its earliest significant application to either epic was uh, Renata Zernantima's monograph on speeches and dialogues from the Ramayana, published nearly 30 years ago, while one of the most frequent, sorry, most recent is Simon Brodbeck's article on uh, the Ekalavya episode in the Ivan of Harvan, which was published just a couple of years ago. Uh, Zernantima concentrates on four long dramatic dialogues and argues persuasively for frequent deliberate structuring of speeches by anaphora, refrains, parallelism and the like, but especially by means of ring composition. And uh, Simon Robbuck suggests that there are actually, I quote, three different symmetrical structures or compositional rings, each of which extends over Adi Barwan, uh, 121 to 128. Uh, in between the appearance of these two, uh, came, of course, uh, Chris Minkowski's major contribution, which points to the con source of the concept of the frame story, first found in the Mahabharata, and so common later, as being the recursive structure of Vedic ritual, where the more elaborate rituals are formed not merely by incorporating smaller ones, but rather by their symmetrical structuring around a focus. One can extend that, therefore, naturally to ring composition. But at some stage in the transmission of the texts, the transition was made from handing on orally to writing down a text that potentially became more fixed as a result. When and how did this happen? I suggested earlier that writing was not used for this kind of purpose for the first century BC. I suspect that in the case of the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, writing of their texts came somewhat later, probably from the first century AD or so onwards. 
But the dating in absolute terms is not really so important as the stage of development which the text had reached. It may well be that commitment to writing can be associated with the shift in transmission from bardic circles to Brahmanical, although it's impossible in our present state of knowledge to determine at what speed either phenomenon occurred. On writing, of course, the many parashrutis found in manuscripts uh, which frequently proclaim the rates of reading the text uh, are strong evidence for it. It's uh, writing apart from the manuscripts themselves. One of them has, though, even been included in the closing verses of the Mahabharata. My own view is that in the case of the Mahabharata, the shift to written transmission is linked with the incorporation of the main body of didactic material, primarily the Shanti and Shasana Paravans. Certainly written rather than oral composition may well be responsible for one clearly late feature, the accounts of what I have termed bracketing repetitions. These are cases where the first and fourth parts of a verse are fixed, while the second and third vary. Instances of such bracketing repetitions are limited in shloka passages to the Shanti and Ashasana and Ashramedika Paravans. Some scholars, relying on a line in that excised passage that refers to Ganesha, a scribe, uh, considered that the extent of the first redaction of this written epic must have been 8,800 verses, although the figure more probably refers to the number of obscure verses, the Kuta shlokas, meant to slow Ganesha down. Others, relying on statements in the text of the first Ajaya, have considered that the names Jaya, Bharata and Mahabharata designate the main stages in the progressive growth of the poem. But these names have no obvious correlation with any recognisable stages, unless possibly with uh, Subtanko's Bhargava expansion, and still less with any oral written divide. Incidentally, the encyclopedic character given to the Mahabharata by the inclusion of the Shanti and Anushasana Paravans in particular, is very different in nature from Eric Havelock's um, suggestion that the poems of Homer served as a kind of encyclopedia for their time, storing information that an oral culture, lacking books as reference works, nonetheless needs to have at hand. While it seems plausible that in some societies the learning necessary for their functioning should be encoded in oral epic, the separation out of such material in the way that we find in the Mahabharata is another matter entirely. In the case of the Ramayana, the shift is most probably linked with the transmission, sorry, transition from the second to the third stages of the growth in the text that I identified over 20 years ago in the book that Gary mentioned as the first of mine. But it needn't have happened all at once any more than the cutoff between those stages is an absolutely sharp one. But it may well be significant that that third stage, the Bala and Uzrakandas, displays a certain self-consciousness about the oral nature of the epic. Since, as I was saying before, the Balakanda contains both the story of Narada telling Valmiki about Rama and Kusha and Lava's narration of Valmiki's composition. Uh, the first of these has Valmiki himself acting in some ways like a bard, although it's partly contradicted by then... Um, the emphasis in the third saga on his having a recourse to meditation to learn more of the story. The second story, Kushan Lava, uh, places some stress on recitation, found again when we, in the Uttarakhanda, have Valmiki's sending of the twins to recite the Ramayana for the first time at Rama's court, 
in a curious blending of old and new, recitation and first performance. And of course the itinerant ballad singers, Pushilavas, their name supposedly derived from the names of Kushit and Lava, although the reverse is more likely to be the case, uh, they did later play a role in the dissemination of the epic among the population at large. More problematic is the issue of how this writing down took place. Again, an analogy from Homeric studies, there's been an ongoing debate there with Albert Lord's oral dictation model soon challenged by Geoffrey Cook's evolutionary model. In many respects, the main issue for all such texts is whether there is a unitary text pointing to a single occasion of writing or one preserving evidence of several occasions of writing down from more or less different oral sources. Suptanka began the debate about the Mahabharata and argued, and for example Egerton in editing the Sabafarvan agreed, that all manuscripts basically derive from a single text, although he acknowledged that complexities in this text established clearly that this was a conflation of existing versions. And so the critical edition is the closest approximation to this archetype that we can achieve. Subsequently, Grinzer briefly addressed the issue of transitional texts and affirmed that the text of the Sanskrit epics in the form of which it's been transmitted in the manuscripts is not a simple transcription of an oral performance. But he dismissed the idea of a considerable period of time during which the poems received a fixed transitional form on the grounds that it would be impossible to transmit such vast epics in a rigorously fixed form. He suggested that traces of the influence of a written tradition are due to changes introduced subsequently and that both epics existed already as fully completed poems in the oral stage of their composition. Uh, more recent contributions to the debate have included Andrea's biggest proposal of a, a normative redaction, which, I quote, came to dominate the whole written tradition of the Sanskrit Mahabharata, uh, a workshop at the first Dubrovnik conference on the epics and Puranas, and Jim uh, Fitzgerald's review of Alf Hitlerbeckel's book, The Education of the Dharma King. An important pointer to the way in which the reduction to writing took place is the presence within the text, the written text, of alternative versions of episodes either juxtaposed or more often inadequately harmonised into a single account. An instructive study of the way that this occurs can be found in Renata Zerner's article on the Jutaparavan. In very broad terms, it's true to say that oral performance tends to generate alternative or variant versions of episodes already present in a narrative, whereas writing tends to favour the expansion of a narrative by the addition of further material, often of an orphan mental nature. Alf Hilterbeitel, as I noted earlier, has challenged the assumptions on which I and others have reached such conclusions. In an article where at that point he's assessing Ruth Katz's book, he comments that she uses two supports for her arguments, Lord's oral formulaic theory and a bit of biblical higher criticism, and asserts, I quote, It may be said that they grew organically from within scholarly traditions that were addressed to questions raised about distinctive features of Homer and the Bible, but not of Indian epics. Yet they've become virtually axiomatic in scholarship on Indian epics and have served as vehicles for imagining them in terms that globalise the methods without addressing the distinctiveness of the texts. They also carry evolutionistic and theological baggage with them. 
Well, essentially, the reason that both methods have been widely adopted is, of course, that they've proved helpful for understanding the complex history of these texts. If such views are evolutionistic, as Hiltenbeitel characterised them, then his views may, just as aptly as a colleague has remarked, uh, be characterised as intelligent design. <laughs> uh, Occam's razor, uh, the warning not to multiply entities more than necessary, has its value and should always be borne in mind but economy should not be achieved by simply jettisoning the evidence. Well, since I've been using Peabody's five tests of orality as a convenient framework for assembling the evidence regarding the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, it's only proper now, before I conclude, uh, to ask whether they're applicable to the Sanskrit epics. And my answer is a bit qualified. The first, at the level of the phoneme, is not conclusive because of the general character of Sanskrit literature although, in my opinion, pointing towards oral production. The second, at the level of formulae, or more generally of word clusters, demonstrates decisively, in my view, that both the Sanskrit epics originated within an oral tradition. <coughs> the third, at the level of the verse, that of enjambement and similar features, equally clearly indicates oral composition. The fourth test, that of theme, also points in the same direction, as does the fifth, insofar as that has yet been investigated. All of these tests thus confirm with varying degrees of certainty the oral origins of both the Sanskrit epics, but there's also ample evidence to establish that they were subsequently committed to writing well before the end of their main period of growth. Kusha and Lava as reciters are truer to the origins of the epic, but Ganesha does get to look in before the end. However, it's evident that the oral poets of the Mahabharata and the Ramayana didn't merely string together episodes informally, or perhaps didn't so much do that, as constructed a pattern or framework to the works that is far more intricate than just an outline plot. Oral formulaic theory helps to explain the mechanics of composition and reveals the usefulness of devices such as formally to the poet or reciter. But what it cannot do, and in all fairness doesn't attempt to do, is to explain poetic artistry. Any assessment of the abilities of oral poets must not be too restricted, and literary sophistication should not be taken without further consideration as a mark of written composition. Thank you. <laughs>